jumping right into Matthew chapter 16, uh, we'll begin in verse number 24, if you want to find, uh, open up your Bibles and find a place there. Uh, we'll be turning to Hebrews 11 at the end of our time together, if you want to put a bookmark in that place. Uh, it's right toward the end of the New Testament, if you have a Bible with a lot of stuff in the back of it, besides the Bible, right, the concordance, the maps, and all that stuff. Uh, might not be as close to the end as it would be otherwise, but uh, Hebrews, uh, we'll be turning there at the end of our time. Matthew 16 is where we're going to begin our time together. Uh, jump right into God's Word, Matthew 16, verse 24 through 27. A very short text that we're going to focus on this morning, but one that packs a pretty powerful punch that may take us into uh, a zone of discomfort, but one that I believe that God's going to give us a lot of help and relief. Uh, for dwelling in for just a little bit this morning. So Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and the scripture says, He said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. If there is a passage of Scripture that has racked my brain more than any other, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a person, it's this one. It's one that I read and reread and reread again. It's one that I just, I don't think I go a day, and I'm not being hyperbolic. I don't go a day without thinking about what this text means and why it's so important. Jesus is maybe his most definite and his most transparent in this passage regarding what it means to be saved and maybe more important. He's very clear about what it means to be lost. Putting specifics aside for just a moment, I want to talk in general here. Jesus, in short, defines salvation. He defines salvation, and it's pretty simple. As following Him, maybe more specific, as following His direction, right? They were literally following Jesus. Now, we follow Him uh, by His Spirit, but we're not following a physical person. We're following Him. Uh, his teaching, His ideas, His essence, we're following Him. We're following the direction, or we aspire to, or I hope you are at least. We're following His direction. So Jesus defines salvation as somebody who follows Him, who follows His direction, His Guidance, His Lordship, you can put it a couple different ways. Uh, so if we were to put this in the simplest of terms, which is what the goal for every service is, simplify it to where all of us have something to hold on to and something to process and, 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 and apply. If we were to put this in the simplest of terms, He doesn't mention beliefs here. He doesn't even mention behavior here. His emphasis is on following. Now, it, obviously, there's a clear connection between, and there's an assumption that if you're following Jesus, you believe in Him, and you're behaving as He wants you to. And all that's true, but the simplest way to be to, to get the meaning of this, and to be very clear, Jesus defines salvation, not by what you believe or what, how you behave on any given day, but are you following Him? Of course that means you believe. Of course that means you're behaving a certain way. But if we're willing to be as clear and in tune with Jesus as possible, following Jesus is what it means to be saved. And to be saved means you're following Jesus. There's no way to define it any other way. At least I read it. And this is a pretty clear reading, I believe, or a pretty easy passage to get the word from. Jesus states everything. And don't underestimate, don't, don't, don't miss this. He, he stakes everything on following Him. And He does not mince words about the alternative, does He? But He's a little more open-ended about what the alternative looks like. But I don't think it's too hard to piece this together. So, think about it for a moment. What is the opposite of following someone's direction? 
Jesus said, if you want to be saved, you're going to follow me. If you want to find life, you must follow me. So, so what do you think is the opposite of following someone, not just Jesus, but if, if someone says, hey, to be saved or to get to where you want to go, follow my direction. So the opposite of following someone's directions, the, the opposite of, 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 being, of, of coming under someone's guidance and teaching and, and directions, the opposite of that. Maybe the best way to put it would be wandering with no direction. Is, can we agree on that? That if following Jesus or following someone, uh, if, if following Jesus is, is the definition of being saved, the opposite of following someone is wandering with no direction. Wandering with no idea where we're actually going or why we're actually doing what we're doing. So Jesus pits these two lifestyles against each other. One represents salvation. The other represents lostness. Or you could say condemnation, but being a little bit less aggressive there, I mean, loss is pretty bad enough. Jesus says salvation is following me, but to be lost means you're wandering. Of course, those words go hand in hand. If you're, if you're wandering, it, it means you don't know where you're going, and, and lost is about the only word that really applies there. But notice these realities, how these realities look in real time. Because Jesus kind of presents this paradox. For the one desiring to save their life, as in the one that works really hard to save their life and to build up their life and preserve their life, which is our human instincts, right? That when you, your back's against the wall, your instinct is to preserve, to try to get out of the, the situation. When you get sick, you go to the doctor. When you have a problem, you try to fix it. So when he says save, he really means preserve. He, he means take care of and make better, which is every one of our desires. This, this isn't some odd, rare human decision. This is every one of our natures. That the one who desires to save their life, that's all of us. All of us have an instinct to save or to preserve ourselves. But Jesus said, if you listen to that instinct, if you lean into that nature that is in all of us, the end game, the end result, the destination that you arrive at is that you lose life rather than finding it. And, and to simplify this, and again, not to be too morbid, but... No matter how many doctors you go to, no matter how much medicine you take, no matter how many surgeries you have, eventually all of us are going to reach a point where we will lose this life, right? The richest people in the world, the most successful people in the world, people that have all the means in the world, eventually their ability to preserve their life comes to an end, right? That none of us, none of us are invulnerable to that reality. That the one who tries to save their life, every one of them, every one of us, eventually, you lose it. But if you realize you're going to lose it anyway, Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, as in you realize you're going to lose it, you know it's not going to last forever, so you choose to lose the life, you choose to live the rest of your life with that ambition and with the desire to follow Jesus with what you have been given and with what... And all that you are. But he says it's not really our nature to do that. So the way he defines these two lifestyles, it's kind of they're kind of opposite of what we would think. Salvation looks like self-denial. Because what does he say? If you want to follow me, you're gonna to have to deny some basic instincts. You're gonna to have to deny yourself, as in it's not gonna be natural to do what I'm gonna ask you to do. Your nature's gonna say, whoa, 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 that's, that that seems like I'm denying what I want and what I need, and that doesn't seem like that's good for me. Jesus, you're telling me to do some things that don't feel like they're good for me, so that does not feel like salvation. That feels like self-denial, and I don't know, denial is what I think is a good thing. Do you see what he's doing here? Salvation looks like self-denial, whereas lostness looks like self-preservation. Oh, I can't follow you, Jesus, because I've got to preserve myself. Because if I deny myself, I lose something. But if I preserve myself, I gain something. I'm saving something. I'm building myself up. So you see what Jesus is doing here? He's leaning, He's causing us to wake up to this reality that to be saved is to make a decision that is opposite of what your nature says you should make. But if you listen to your nature, if you listen to your instinct, you will ultimately be lost. That's kind of heavy, isn't it? Usually we don't get this deep in five minutes in, but I, I wanted us to get here as fast as we could to kind of let this simmer. 
What's natural, what's normal, what's desirable, what's an attempt to quench the hunger that our hearts all cry for is self-preservation. But Jesus says, I want you to listen to me. I love you. I'm telling you this because I love you. That approach leads to lostness. That approach of preserving and fighting and clinging, that approach 100% of the time leads to hopelessness. Again, this isn't my words. It's not anybody, any theologian's words. These are Jesus' words, right? Straight out of the mouth of the man who came from heaven to tell us this. So it makes sense why he is shouting from the rooftops, follow me. Because how would we know unless he told us? Because what does Jesus reveal to us in this passage? Our nature is to do the opposite of what he says we need to do to be saved. So unless he tells us, we will remain lost. And unless we do what he tells us, we will remain lost. Unless we follow him, we will remain lost. So by all means, we need to hear what Jesus says, don't we? But as he's told us, it's even more clear and it's, that it's not instinctive. How can we be saved unless we follow him? How can we? Religion may make us try to do some things for a little while, but our nature is going to take over eventually. How can we be saved unless we follow Jesus? Because he's made it very clear. Our nature is against everything that he's going to tell us to do. We must follow him in order to be saved. If we're not following him, are we really just wondering about listless and directionless? I mean, we're all trying to make something of ourselves. We're all trying to do our best and to make the best out of this life. Is Jesus really the missing link? Maybe the most alarming part of this, and maybe the question this passage makes me and requires me to ask every time I read it. Shouldn't we be wary of our instincts to self-preserve and self-promote our desires to find and save our lives by our own means if Jesus has revealed to us that that's never going to work out? You know, I know a lot of us, we think, well, i got to listen to my gut. i got to do what feels instinctual, what feels natural to me. But shouldn't we be wary of what feels like self-preservation, what feels like self-promotion, what feels like what anybody would do in my shoes? Shouldn't we be wary of taking our own advice so quickly when it means when it comes to the direction or the lack of direction we have? Because according to Jesus, that way does not lead anywhere. It's really just a mirage, like you would find in the desert. Now you know why we call this message the discomfort zone. So welcome to it. But to kind of alleviate some of the discomfort, um, I, I want to let that cook a little bit, let that simmer a little bit, let that kind of build up a little bit in your hearts and minds. And uh, while you're listening at the same time, right, I, I want to introduce you to a person. I want to talk about a person. I don't want to tell you who he is because I don't know if I should tell you his name. It, it's kind of personal. Uh, but we're going to call him Wanderer, uh, fitting with our earlier analogy. We're going to call him Wanderer or maybe let's call him The Wanderer which is really a play on his surname or their family name. Uh, Wanderer and their family uh, were given this name, sort of a play or a pun on the actual name of the family, uh, the actual last name or the actual tribal name, um, because that's the kind of what they did, that they just wondered. If, if you saw this person, they were always wondering, not just physically, but in, in spiritual or in, you know, kind of uh, uh, figurative uh, language. Um, in their world, it was hard to stand out. Uh, the time that they live and the world they lived in. Uh, it was hard to achieve any notoriety because all the power and all the wealth was concentrated to a very few amount of places, even fewer families. Uh, so Wanderer was just wandering, and he, he, he was very limited, his family was very small, uh, and it was very hard to make something of yourself in their world. But by age 75, this thing's late for us, by age 75, Wanderer finally made it. By age 75, Wanderer finally achieved a modicum of success, was finally accepted into one of the major civilizations and cities of their day, um, were accepted in and given a place in the prominent area of the world. They finally made it, and you hope you made it before 75, but some of you who have seen 75 and are still doing well afterwards, hey, you, you know, hey that, 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 that's nothing wrong with that. But you know, if you're younger, if you're in your 50s, 40s, 30s, you want to make it before 75, maybe, right? But Wanderer, he finally made it around age 
at 75 and he was ready to settle down, retire, and enjoy what was left of life. A little bit later than most would have dreamed for, but hey, take what you can get, right? Uh, and, and, and enjoy what's left. Now, what have I told you at, at or after 75, after finally making it to the modest of, making it in the modest of terms, uh, what have I told you that Wanderer woke up one morning and told their family, their, their spouse and their nephew, which is the only people that they really had close to them, uh, told their family, hey, I had a vision last night. Uh, you didn't hear, you didn't have a vision, but I did. Uh, I heard a voice. Uh, you didn't hear the voice, but I heard the voice. Uh, and the voice told me that we need to leave everything behind and we need to start walking back into the wilderness. What's that saying? You can take the wilderness out of the wonder, but you can't take the wonder. That's not a real saying, is it? Um, I mean, it's all uncomfortable now. We don't want to, don't want to laugh. We're just protesting. Wanderer said to his family, hey, I heard a voice. I know we've got it made now. I know we're having a good life. But, uh, hey, we are going to go back and wander for a little bit more. Uh, and they would say, no, 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 we're not. We're not. And you would say, no, we're not doing that. I mean, we've wandered all our life. We finally made it. Who knows how much longer we have left to live. We finally made it. We've got some success. We've got some comfort to enjoy. We are not going anywhere. Uh, but, oh, but, and then you would say, yeah, yeah, we are. I had this vision. I had this voice. Uh, it told me to go and begin to wonder. Um, but I, I, it's not like it was before. Uh, we're, we're not going to be wandering with no direction. We're going to be wandering in a very specific direction, but I can't tell you where we're going because the voice is just going to tell me as we go. You would think, well, what is wrong with you? What voice are you listening to? I mean, the voice told you to follow it, but it didn't tell you where you're going. Now, that's exactly it. But hey, we're going to go. I'm confident we're going to find our true destiny. Now, if that was your husband, your wife, your parent, your friend, you would try to convince them, we finally made it, 75 years old, can we not just chill? Can we not just relax? Can we not just do what everybody else does before they ever reach 75, really? Can we not just settle down and just enjoy life? I mean, come on, can we take a few hobbies up? Can we, can we just relax? And what part of walking into nothingness that is in whatever direction you're talking about, what part of that sounds like anything but wondering? It just sounds like we're just getting lost again. Now, you might consider or be convinced or reconsider, but I, I probably would be convinced, but not this person. Wanderer realized their destiny wasn't where they had always expected or believed it or hoped it would be. Their salvation was not found in what they once believed and wanted to be found in. Their salvation was actually found in something completely different. Their destiny, their completion was somewhere else with someone else. It would just require a little bit of courage and faith to finally arrive at it in the end. So they convinced their spouse, they convinced their small family to join them as they followed this vision, this idea. All the while, as it appeared as if they were just wandering around, 75 turned into 85, 85 turned into 99, and they just kept wandering. And one day, at age 99, Wanderer woke up and said to his family, Hey, I know y'all have called me a certain name for all my life, but I've changed my name. Because, hey, that's really going to help us out. We're going to just go by a completely different name for now. That's really going to help make it somebody in this world. I'm sure people close to him thought he's already lost his mind. He's delusional. Just let him go. We, we, we can't help him at this point. Everyone who formerly knew Wanderer forgot about them and never really saw them or their family again. All because they were convinced their true destiny, their true destiny would only be found through life in this discomfort zone. Most of us, especially Americans, and I can only speak to us because that's where I am and who I am and what I'm a part of and what I know about myself. Most of us, especially Americans with our dreams and our plans and our sophisticated worldviews and our sensible understanding of how life works, we would pity the fools who would do this to themselves. Right? Oh, you're, you're, you're in your 70s or your 80s, you're going to leave everything and follow some dream? I mean, come on, you're, but you're not really going anywhere, you're just wandering around, but it looks like you're not really accomplishing anything? I mean, is that really... That seems silly. That seems foolish. That seems, let's be honest, that seems kind of dumb. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you do that to your family that really isn't got much going on anyway? And let's be honest, and let's bring this to the real world. We would be terrified if we woke up one morning. 
with an inescapable conviction that if we really wanted to find ourselves, we would have to lose everything we've ever dreamed of or worked for to get it. Wouldn't you? We would be absolutely terrified if we woke up. Not only at 75, if we were 35, we would be terrified if we woke up one morning and we worked so hard to get to that place and all of a sudden something told us an inescapable conviction came from within us. If I really want to find my true destiny, if I want to find myself, I've got to lose all of this. Wouldn't you be absolutely terrified if that was your conviction, that you couldn't escape? Even if it was inescapable, it would be very hard for most of us, any of us, to do anything about that kind of conviction, wouldn't it? Thankfully, that would never happen in our real world, right? Thankfully, this is just a fairy tale. Of course, it never would happen to anybody because who would be that silly? Who would be that foolish? And thankfully, we're never going to wake up with an inescapable conviction that says, hey, if you really want to find your life, you've got to lose it. To us, to anyone, the case of the wanderer seems like the case of insanity or delusion, right? To anybody with a sound mind, this story, this case, sounds like a case of insanity. That's what my brain does, and that's what, how I rationalize a story like that. To anybody with a sound mind, to anybody with half a brain, that just seems like a silly thing to even consider, let alone do. But then I come to Matthew 16, verse 24. And oh, by the way, this is printed, Jesus preaches this sermon in all four Gospels. This, literally, this, this sermon is in three Gospels. It's technically in John as well, if you read it in John 12. So my, my, my American, my modern, my sophisticated, you know, civilized brain says... That's a crazy scenario that would never happen to anybody and should never even be considered by anybody. But then my, my, my heart reads this word, reads the book that we claim to believe, the Word of God. And I read Matthew 16, verse 24. And, I, and, I, and I, again, I think anybody that hears that would think that's crazy. But then Jesus says, if anyone, anyone, anyone that would think that's crazy, anyone... If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, which was an electric chair of their day, a surefire way of dying. It was a way of dying. It was a picture of death. Dying to yourself. If anyone would have come after me, let him deny himself, take up their cross, and follow me. And then he says, for whoever, so Jesus is pretty definite here, right? If anyone, if who, whoever desires, if anyone desires, or whoever desires. So, that means all of us, right? It means all of us. The tension, this tension, the tension of this, com this sort of conversation that within us is a tension that I first became aware of as a teenager. And this, this is the tension that I've lived in ever since. Because part of me says that's insane. That's, that's God would never. But then I read the Bible. And I see what Jesus says is the secret to truly finding life. And somewhere in my heart and my mind, there is this tension every single day. Where something says don't believe it. And something says you must. Between 15 or 20 years ago, when I first began to read the Bible, study the Bible, I frequently had a particular experience in which I would read a passage like this one, and it would be whether a teaching or a story, and I would think, wow, I've never heard anyone talk about this before. And if, 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 it, was, if it was talked about, it was sanitized, it was watered down, and I would hear this passage preached, and, and it would just really skip over some of the things we've talked about, and... and I would think, are you really reading the text? I mean, Jesus just raised the stakes and actually told us what it really means to be saved. And then you turn it into something else. I mean, are you really preaching the text? Oh, don't be convicted by that. That's no big deal. Just go back and do what you want to do. And, and hey, just make sure you, you pray to Jesus once or twice in your life. As I grew older and I began to broaden my exposure and education, it became more clear to me that really there are two often dueling forms of Christianity operating concurrently. Now, there's only one version of it in the world. 
There's these two dueling forms of Christianity. Sometimes they're playing together, sometimes they're very opposite of each other and clearly. Uh, and, and, and it's become clear to me that there is, there is biblical Christianity and there is cultural Christianity. Now, again, we shouldn't have to separate these two, but we just do because there are clearly two institutions. There's two movements in our world. There are these two versions of professing to follow and serve Jesus really couldn't be more opposite of each other. Biblical Christianity has not changed since it began. Uh, but cultural Christianity never looks the same. In every generation, it changes and looks different. However, it's clear within any given generation that cultural Christianity has far more adherents, has far more participants. It's not what it's, it's not that, that that's what people default or choose over the other. It's that most churches offer the people uh, and, and those that rely on their church to supply them their those of Jesus. Of course, that's what you do, right? You go to church and listen to what's being said. That's what people give. But even for someone who develops healthy habits of, of a faithful disciple, like I'm sure most of you have, as you begin to read and study the Bible, it's so hard to not bring for, to not bring in so much with us, so much influence that colors our reading and often tints our beliefs and tones down or changes what we have in front of us. And this is why cultural Christianity is so powerful and often so dominant. And it's not completely devoid of the gospel. It's not empty of biblical truth. But it's certainly not pure and it's certainly lacking the necessary spirit of inspiration and conviction. For that reason, so many times in so many ways, the demands of culture take precedent over the ways and demands of actual biblical Christianity. And while I'm sure God can't be too pleased with how often things go, I think the people most affected by this are us. Of course, God doesn't have a law sin at all. He's God whether we believe or not. We're the ones that suffer. You and I, we are the ones that suffer because we miss out on the true blessing that comes along with being alive with the Jesus that's actually revealed to us in the Bible. The problem, though, and it was so common in Jesus' day, so by all means it's common in today's world, uh, the, the problem uh, is that initially and upon first blush uh, with what the Bible tells us about Christianity, the demands and ways of, the, of true biblical Christianity fly in the face of the desires and ways of culture, which is why Jesus is so blunt here. There are so many passages, so many teachings, so many truths that come across as extreme, radical, impossible, and our flesh outright rejects them. But maybe even more dangerous is how our culture modifies and amends them to become more malleable and more suitable to what we think is more ideal. This is so dangerous, and I do this every day. I, and maybe you don't, but I do, and I think it's in all of us to do this. As a result, cultural Christianity seems to fit into our pre-established molds and templates for life. It quenches that cry of our conscience that we need somebody to save us and help us that the world can't give us. It quenches that cry, yet the convictions of the true message are toned so much down that we don't get the real thing. Come on, without even reading the Bible, knowing what we know about Christianity, about why Jesus came, the idea that Christianity should or even could fit into our pre-established way of doing life, shouldn't that be alarming? Because didn't Jesus come from heaven to save us from a lost world? So if we think we can fit Jesus into what we already have established, shouldn't that be a red flag? Right? Shouldn't that be something that makes us stand up and say, whoa, 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 if I am fitting my, if I, if I am putting Christianity into a temple that's already, that I already have, that's not salvation. Then, then aren't our models for life that we've accepted, aren't they insufficient and in need of total overhaul? And shouldn't we be remodeling them and not adding Jesus to them? So any version of Christianity that fits into our way of life before or apart from Jesus should be a big red flag to us. And any interpretation of Jesus and his teaching that lowers the stakes, lessens the demands, should be concerning. And, and I want to just give you a big, big, big uh, red flag to carry with you to, to church. And you won't ever hear it here. You know, I, I promise you this from me. But, uh, and I don't even mean, people don't mean this in a, in a negative or a, or a, a, a Greek or under. Or what's the word? Irreligious or uh, way, but they say this all the time. If, if any interpretation of Jesus that lowers the stakes, when people preach Jesus and they say, "Oh, Jesus really didn't mean that. What he really meant was this. 
Anytime anybody ever says that and they tone down Jesus and they water down Jesus and they make Jesus who says something that sounds like it's a pretty urgent deal. Oh, he didn't really mean that. Run away. And I know oh, when, they, when they say that, we just feel relieved. Oh, I'm so glad he didn't really mean that. Oh, Matthew gave him everything. Oh, you don't have to do that. Oh, that guy, the rich guy couldn't follow Jesus because he wasn't well. Oh, that was just him, not you. Oh, don't ever think that God would ever ask you to do that. Oh, in Acts, they gave up, they saw their, oh, you don't do that. I know it says to do it, but oh, you and, and that thing in us that feels, oh, wow, I'm so glad that that doesn't apply to me. We should think, what's wrong with you? We should talk to ourselves, and maybe that makes, makes us crazy, but I do this. When, when I feel relieved, when I take an interpretation, I water it down, and I, I, I sanitize it, and I say, oh, that's not really applying to me. Part of me says, what's wrong with you? Like, are you trying to hurt yourself? Are you trying to make yourself feel better right now, but eternally cost yourself something? Because that's what you're doing. Are we still here? As if Jesus didn't mean what he said when he said what he said. Do you think Jesus needs us to take his words and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know about that. He didn't really mean that. He meant this. Are you sure? Oh, trust me. Jesus preached high stakes, big risk, and big reward when it came to following him or not following him. I think one of those under one of the most overlooked parts of this passage is down in verse 27 when he says, The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father, and he will reward those that follow him. But we get hung up on the well, what I gotta give up to follow him. I mean, I'm self-denial and, and, and self, you know, by the time I even get to following Jesus, I'm not gonna have what I actually like, and I don't know if I want to do that, and we miss out on the promise. A byproduct of cultural Christianity is that we take a big risk in missing out on what Jesus actually invites us to experience. Which is why once a year or so we take a fresh and exciting and potentially life-changing look at the gospel. I do this once a month, but we do this once a year at church. And maybe sometimes it seems like we're doing that more often, but that's just the Bible. So hey, I don't intend on that all the time. But intentionally as a pastor, I lead the church through a conversation about what it really means to be a Christian. What's on the line if we miss out, and what's on the table if we are, what's on the table that we might be missing out on already. And in this conversation, we call it ready, set, go, because a lot of us aren't ready to go and experience what God has for us. It's essential that we hear anew and afresh the words of Jesus to consider that eternally important question. Are we following Jesus at all? At all? Because there's a lot of people. They're just not following him. And it's obvious. And we look in the mirror and we believe and we sing and we profess, but we're just, we never took a step in his direction. And if we're not following Jesus with the way that we live and the things that we do and the aspirations that we have, I mean, if we're not following him, why are we fooling ourselves? But a lot of us, we're not, are, we have to ask the question, are we following him with our whole heart? Is there something that we're not giving to him? Is there something that we've not brought to him through self-denial? Are we leaving too big of a gap? Between us and him. And, and, and last week we heard the invitation that Jesus gave. And really it feels like an ultimatum. Remember how he came on the scene? He said, repent. As in the way you're doing it, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. Your nature is not what you really think it is. Repent. Follow me. Repent. Follow me. People thought Jesus was absolutely mad for claiming that following him would take them to a new way of life. His own family thought he had lost his mind. Access to God is locked behind you. Doing the things that you tell us to do. Acting the way that you tell us to act. Acting, accessing God is behind you. I mean, Jesus, that seems insane. And you're asking us to deny our basic instincts in order to follow you and to love those that hate us and to be charitable to those that take from us, to be merciful to those that are unmerciful to us. You're asking us to do these things that just don't feel natural. You're asking us to give rather than hoard. You're asking us to live a life of sacrifice rather than a life of... Demand? I mean, that just doesn't sound... You're asking us to consider what God's will is instead of what our will is? I mean, that's just not natural. It's not normal. 
The more they heard him, the more unnatural and uncomfortable his call sounded. And then he comes on the scene and he says, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and then follow me. As in, until you unfollow yourself, you won't follow me. It's kind of like your, your vehicle has a hitch on the back of it if you drive a bigger vehicle, SUV, or truck. And you can only pull one thing at a time, right? You can only hitch one thing to your vehicle. And in this scenario, we're the thing getting hitched, right? In this scenario, we're not the vehicle. If we're the vehicle, we're already going along the wrong page. In this scenario, we are the thing needing something to hitch ourselves to. We can only be hitched to one thing at a time. Because you know what it's like when you try to follow too many things at one time. It doesn't end well. We can't even carry two things at one time, right? Come on. You know what all these verses tell me? Jesus was well aware that his demands would seem so radical and sound a bit crazy. He was leaning into it, doubling down on it, because he was willing, listen to this, he was willing to put his neck on the line. There's two solutions to Jesus saying stuff like this. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, lose it for my sake, find it. There's two scenarios. Either he is absolutely out of mind, or he is the savior of the world, and there is no other way for us to be saved except through him. Either he is completely out of it and we should not listen to a thing he says, or he is the Savior we need. You know why I think he was so bold and brash when he said this? He knew that he'd be proven right. He knew that if we bring everything we are and give it to him, if we bring all that we are, all that we might ever be, and we say, here it is, Lord, use it for your glory, send me in your direction, he knew, as scared as we might be to do that, if we actually do it, we will be the most complete and full and fulfilled that we ever could be. He knew it. But that doesn't make it less difficult. That doesn't make us less uncomfortable when we hear it, does it? Our flesh tenses up, makes us uneasy, worried, because what is Jesus asking us to give up? What is it going to cost me? How much discomfort is necessary to take hold of true life? Maybe if it was just laid out for us, uh, like, like we talked about it, maybe it'd be better. Probably not. We still worry. We still doubt because that's our nature. As I began reading the Bible as I was growing up, it's these invitations and words of Jesus that pulled at my heart. And in retrospect, it was clearly the Holy Spirit working and that keeps tugging at my heart, compelling me to follow Jesus, to say yes to him, even if that means saying no to myself. Following Jesus may, and it does indeed require a leap of faith, but it will never result in a life of regret. On the contrary... To, to back away from Jesus because of potential discomfort would without question lead to a life of endless regret. And a lot of us already have plenty of it, don't we? i got to say that I would still be searching in my flesh. I'm still tempted to go astray if not for God placing the right voices in my life at the right time. One of the major voices in my life, in my spiritual development over the last 15, 20 years, has been passion and worship. Uh, Passion is based out of Atlanta. Their headquarters are a church called Passion City Church, about 15 years old, but their organization goes back farther. Uh, their ministry operation, they house a band, the music that we sing, 80% of it comes from this Passion Worship Group. Uh, their songs are not only fresh and relevant, but they're biblically sound and, doc and do doctrinally solid. And it's my introduction to some of their former leaders, Chris Tomlin, and people from their house that actually uh, brought me to this place where I began to uh, grow in the spirit and actually begin to seek out what true biblical Christianity actually was. Passion's founder and leader isn't a musician, even though he's written many of their songs, uh, a pastor by the name of Louis Giglio. Uh, Louis was raised in Atlanta, and his family is so deeply connected to the uh, Atlanta brand. Actually, his father was an illustrator, and we're all pretty familiar with the logo. Let's skip ahead two slides that his father drew. So you've seen that before. Uh, Louis' father is the artist behind this famous logo that's not only in Atlanta, but it's all over uh, the place. But uh, Louis and Passion are more famous and have done far more than, uh, than, than bring the Chick-fil-A logo to the world, even though that's done a lot of good for the kingdom, right? Those, those folks really show us how it's done. Um, but uh, Louis grew up at First Baptist Atlanta. You've all heard of that church. You've watched services on, on the TV, on television for years and years. Uh, Louis sat under Dr. Charles Stanley. 
um, and actually uh, became best friends with Charles' son, Andy, and Louie and Andy worked together in, in a local church that's still thriving uh, for many, many years. But Louie had a passion to uh, begin ministering to young adults, teenagers, and college students uh, in the late 90s, and uh, that's where the Passion Worship Movement began, and that's where the Passion Conferences began. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, one of the earliest Passion Conferences was, uh, was an event called one Day with God uh, in uh, the year 2000, and the speaker for that event was another prominent and famous preacher, uh, John Piper. Uh, Piper uh, was, was in prayer for this uh, movement for many, many months. 40,000 college kids and teenagers would be gathering at this conference, and he knew that big things were on the line. Uh, and it's because of these voices, uh, this confluence of voices, uh, that saved me from cultural Christianity and brought me into true and under true biblical Christianity. Uh, Piper preached a sermon on this very subject at that Passion One Day with God meeting that I remember reading an excerpt from before I ever was able to go on YouTube, before YouTube was a thing. Uh, reading an excerpt from and actually reading a book that was inspired by the sermon. And, and, and again, that sermon was called, uh, Don't Waste Your Life. Piper began that sermon all those years ago like this. You don't have to have a lot or know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. You don't have to be smart or good looking or from a good family. Uh, you, you just have to know a few basic, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay your life down for them. Piper warned the crowd that every part of their being decries and eschews the idea of laying anything down, uh, that this world was actually training them to hold on to their life, to take up as much as they can, adding to their life. Uh, poignantly, Piper uh, 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 appealed to the lawn full of teenagers and, and, and college kids, and little did he know, many others that would listen to these sermons years later, or this sermon years later, uh, who were being appropriated by culture to spend the first half of their life trying to set up the last half of their life. And of course, that's the rhythm that our culture is training us to, to fall in line with. That we would spend trying to make as much as we can so that hopefully one day we can do as little as we have to in order to do whatever we want to. That's the world. The world is training us for this. The world is priming us for this. The world is trapping us in this mold. Perhaps the most famous or maybe infamous part of the sermon was when Piper, uh, was maybe his most memorable quote ever, was midway through the sermon. Piper began narrowing in on what it meant to live a life for God's glory versus wasting your life. He spoke about two women, nurses, who had lost their lives in an accident in Cameroon, Africa, on the mission field to help better people's lives with the gospel and with charity. Someone, some would consider this a tragedy, two women never having a family of their own, dying on the other side of the world for sick and poor and unsaved. But Piper contrasted the story, and I'll never forget when I heard this the first time. He contrasted the story of that apparent tragedy with something he had read about in the Reader's Digest. I don't know if that's still a thing, but it was then. He read about, in the Reader's Digest, a, a, a passage spotlighting the American dream. And he read about a couple of Bob and Penny. And, and the Digest said that Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. When he was just 59 and she was 51. Now they live in uh, Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler. They play softball and they collect seashells. What a dream. And Piper deadpanned, this is the true tragedy of our generation. Not that two would die without this world's trophies, but that two would make their goal to obtain this world's trophies. Seashells. And think they'd make it. What does Jesus mean when he says, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me? What does he mean when he says, if you want to find life, you've got to give it up? Giving up means turning it over to God. Presenting it to God. Not offering him a portion to pacify him, but surrendering him everything to glorify him. And we'll find that when God is glorified, we will be truly and finally and fully satisfied. When we honor God with all that we are and all we have, that's when we take hold of the gift that we are cutting ourselves off from in so many ways. Cultural Christianity says life is about what you see and what you obtain. But keep that ticket in your back pocket. You'll need it someday. Don't let Jesus demands 
disrupt your life, eat, drink, and be merry, live the dream, retire, and take it easy. If that's what Christianity is to us, we are tragically mistaken. We may think we're on track to arrive somewhere, but in reality, we are wandering around, hoping, wishing, striving to obtain something that has proven to be elusive and out of reach to everyone who went before us. This world is constantly moving its goalposts higher, and believe me, we will run out of life long before we ever get all the goals we think we need in order to finally and fully make it. And that's the true tragedy. Jesus invites us to take a different approach. If you're going to lose this life anyway, why don't we lose it for the only one who can save it and give it an eternal purpose? If we follow Jesus with our marriages, in our relationships, in our money, in our careers, in our dreams, and we bring all that to Jesus, our desires and our, our, our plans, bring them all to Jesus and lay them before him, we will find something intangible and something remarkable. If we open God's word daily, if we listen to his voice daily, his word directs us into a life that glorifies him and satisfies us. And it may cost us and it will cost us, but we will never regret it. I thank God for his voice and his word every day. And thankfully, he's been calling people for a lot longer than I've been alive. Not only since Jesus was here, but for 4,000 years, there's record of his calling people. And what seems like disrupting their lives, he was actually saving their lives. And if you didn't figure it out, Wanderer, his real name was Abraham, the Hebrew, which Hebrew means Wanderer. Abraham walked the earth 4,000 years ago, after finally settling down, he got up one day, heard the voice of God, follow me to find a life more fulfilling than you think you found. In Genesis 12, the Bible says that God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred. I will show you the land, but I'm not going to give you a map. I'm going to show you as you go. Go, and he promises them this. He said, I will make of you a great nation so that you will be a blessing. I will make you something. This world's trying to get, show you how to make it. I'll make you something. I'll make you a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And all these years later, aren't you glad Abram said yes? Because all of you know Abram. Not because he settled down in Ur and retired to a nice and comfortable life, but because he got up and went into the middle of nowhere, believing he would find his life if he just lost it. And God told Abraham one day when he was worried, he said, Abraham, I am your shield. Your word shall be very I want you to hear this from Hebrews, though, because Abram died before he really saw the fruits of this labor. Hebrews 11, verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive an inheritance. And he went, not knowing where he was going. Listen to verse 12. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Sand. Abraham, you're going to have descendants as many as the grains of the sand. You don't realize how big of an impact you're having on the world. It may feel like you're losing your life, but you're gaining. You're giving so many others a chance. So at the end of the day, we've got two options in front of us. We can spend our lives trying to fill up a bucket of seashells. Oh, look at these. Look what I've got. We can make that entire goal, our life around this entire goal, filling our bucket of seashells up because, hey, that looks nice and that makes me somebody in this world. Or that's the ideal. That's the dream. Or we can live a life that may seem as if it's not always bringing coming to fruition in the here and now, but it's bringing about blessings as innumerable as the sand of the sea. The scripture says down in verse 13 that Abraham died in vain, not receiving the promises, but having seen them afar off, embracing them, confessing he was just a stranger and a pilgrim on earth. 
In verse 16, he says he desired a better country, a country in heaven. And that is our invitation, church. So what will it be? Jesus makes it pretty simple. Follow me. And here's my, I, I always tell people, I know this makes this uneasy. It makes me feel, makes me uneasy every time I hear this message. I preach to myself every day. If there's something in you that says, you know what, maybe I could bring more to God. Do it. Don't quench the spirit. What are you going to regret when you get to heaven and say, God, I gave you too much time. I could have had that hour myself. Oh, wow. No. Right? I know I'm extreme and radical and all. Oh, it's so intense. I mean, just pray a prayer and go home. Right? That's what we want to do. Hey, when you give before God and God says, Thou good and faithful servant, you brought it all to me. And look at the number of sand, the innumerable grains of sand. That's the trail you left behind. That's what you have to gain. So there's something in your life that you think, you know what, maybe, you know, maybe I can bring that to God. I don't know. I mean, who, who knows what it'll do? Listen, God, you think God's going to take something from you that you're going to regret? You think God's going to take something from you that's bad for you? That's going to be bad for you the end result? The only reason why we don't want to bring it to God is because we're scared. And that is not from God. That's from the devil who thinks he has you. Maybe a little bit of you, but enough of you. So will be. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and follow me. The world may pity us and scoff at us, but our eyes are not on the world. Our eyes are on heaven. And let me just say this. If you do this, if you do this, those around you, they will be extremely grateful that you chose a life that put others first instead of yourself. You will be eternally satisfied that you chose a life to glorify God over yourself. And God will be forever and I got a lot of stuff. I collect a lot of stuff. That bucket of seashells is staying here. We get to heaven. The only thing that will last is what glory did we bring to God? Don't you want to make that star as bright as it can be? I know I do. I know we all do. We pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this invitation. Thank you that Jesus did not mince his words. Lord, thank you that he didn't water it down. He didn't try to say, oh, don't worry about that. Just pray the prayer and go home and come back later. Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving my life from what could be a, a, a life of cultural appropriation and cultural comfort, but Lord, a life of eternal waste. Lord, you're calling your people to look across the table at those that you put around them, their family, their children, their neighbors, those that you have put in their lives, to consider them instead of themselves, to consider the poor, those around them that don't have what they have over themselves. You're, you're calling us to look around the world that needs to hear about Jesus and say, maybe I'm supposed to go tell them about Jesus. You're, you're calling us to look into the kingdom of heaven and say, what am I doing for heaven versus what am I doing for earth? What, what's in my bucket of shells versus what are the innumerable grains of sand that I might be missing out on. The blessings of eternity. Lord, I pray you would shake up a generation like you shook up my heart and so many others years ago. Shake us up and uproot us. Lord, we bring everything we have to you because we want all that you have for us. In Jesus' name.